All right, so Paradox. Um, how do you typically do uh, with Paradox? Meaning when something just, you're perplexed by something, it just doesn't make sense to you, what do you typically do? Like what is your general reaction? Uh, I'll give you three to choose from and you can kind of corner yourself in. Do you check out of the conversation and get frustrated just because you cannot comprehend it, your mind just can't fathom whatever the paradox might be? So you just check out. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, do you literally take the gloves off and just come out swinging uh, and you dig your heels in and you're just ready to swing at anyone uh, who has an opposing idea, an opposing view to how you understand uh, a perceived paradox? Uh, or do you just even hear the word paradox and you just walk out of the room? You're just not even interested. You avoid tough conversations. You avoid those all together. Well, as long as you are alive, you're going to be confronted with paradoxal things. Uh, this morning, I will present you with uh, a paradox, as I've already mentioned. But uh, as I was doing some study and research uh, this week, uh, I came across uh, a paradox uh, about the nature of light. Now, if you are at all uh, into quantum mechanics, this will sound very familiar to you. And I know that most of you enjoy, as light reading, studying quantum mechanics. But <laughs> one of you does. But uh, for the longest time, scientists debated just the nature of light, specifically how light travels. There were some scientists who debated that light travels more like a wave similar to sound. And they tested their theories, and their tests revealed that they were right, that sound or uh, light travels much like a wave. Then there were other scientists on the other side of the argument who said, no, it does not travel like a wave. It more travels uh, like particles emulating from its source, and it travels in particles, not like a wave. And when they tested their theory in terms of light traveling as particles, they proved that their theory was right. So you're left now with a paradox. When they tested for it as light as a wave, they saw that the test came back in support of that. When they tested light in, uh, in, in terms of uh, particles, test came back in support of that. Aha, but there was a young unknown scientist at the time who looked a little bit uh, something uh, like this. You might know him. This is actually an older Albert Einstein. So when he came up with a theory of wave-particle duality. Now, what he proposed was uh, light does both. It travels as a wave, and it travels as a particle. His theory made absolutely no sense at all. How could it do one thing, but then do another thing all at the same time? And his, his theory just flew in the face of anything that any understanding that we had uh, about laws of physics. <clears throat> it just didn't make sense. And so we're left with this paradox. So his theory of uh, what was called wave-particle duality at the time just made no sense. But it actually was the thing that won him a Nobel Prize. How could the nature of light be both wave and how could the nature of light be particle? And they were left with a paradox. To this day, this is an argument uh, that goes not necessarily back and forth, but it's one of those things that's just very difficult to understand the nature of light. Now, as I mentioned, in life, we're going to be presented with paradoxes all the time. Over the past few weeks, specifically as we've been walking through Romans chapter 8 and specifically Romans chapter 9, 
we're left with this paradox of the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely in control. God knows all things. God is behind all things. Uh, but then we're also left with this paradox of hu human responsibility. So let me ask this question, the paradox that we've wrestled with, sovereignty of God and just free will or human responsibility. How do we reconcile this paradox? How can God be absolutely sovereign, but then how can I have responsibility? If God's in control of everything, God chooses everything, how do I have responsibility? It just doesn't make sense that you can have one and the other, and they both be true at the same time. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon uh, this question of how do you reconcile this paradox of, you know, human responsibility versus the sovereignty of God? And I loved his response. Charles Spurgeon just said this, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Did you get that? I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. As he understood the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, he didn't see that there was a divide. He actually saw that these two, sovereignty of God and human responsibility, actually coalesced very nicely uh, together, that they were friends, they were not divided, they were not enemies, that there was nothing to reconcile because they reconciled themselves together. I'm not saying this is easy to understand, but at least as I've studied scriptures uh, over the years, one of the things that I've come to embrace is just because I cannot understand something, things like the Trinity, I don't completely understand how God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He is one, but he is three. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, fully God, but yet fully man. These are difficult things to understand, but one of the things that I've reconciled with myself is just because I don't understand something does not mean that it's not true. And I think sometimes when we get to difficult matters, especially in Scripture, most, I'm not saying all, but generally speaking, a lot of us just kind of check out. I can't understand it, therefore it's probably not true. Since my mind can't comprehend it, it's, it's, it's either got to have some errors in it or some lies or some manipulation. Um, and I hope that you can come to a place as you study and wrestle with scriptures. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. The Apostle Paul worked really hard to make clear that God is absolutely sovereign. God made a choice. His choice was based in his righteousness and his choice reveals his mercy but also his justice. But scripture also reveals that humans have responsibility. Now, for the next two weeks, today and next to Sunday, I want to look at specifically uh, the end of Romans 9 and, and Romans 10 of what is our responsibility uh, to God. God's sovereign, but I still have responsibility in light of his sovereignty. This is Romans uh, chapter 9, start at verse 30. It says this, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it was written, as it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame." So in light of everything that Paul has just instructed, everything that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has been teaching, 
he asks this question of, in light of the sovereignty of God, meaning the doctrine of election, what should our response be? Verse 30, what then, what do we say to this? How are we to think about this? How are we to understand what Paul has been presenting to us in Romans chapter 9? Um, Paul gives, in a way of answer, two different scenarios or two different people. There is one person, one scenario, and this is the person. There will be those who obtain righteousness, not because they pursued it, but because they received the righteousness of God by faith. They didn't pursue righteousness, but when righteousness was revealed, they received it in faith. That's person one. Person number two, then there will be those who worked all of their life to obtain righteousness. They did good things. They were morally upstanding. They paid attention to the rules and to the laws. And Paul says what they sought, what they were looking for, what they were pursuing, they're not going to find it. And the answer of why won't these people find it if they were looking for it and they were pursuing it, they were working their way towards it. And Paul's response is simply, uh, they had misplaced faith. They had faith in themselves. They didn't have faith in Christ. They went about looking for God, but they went about looking for God by trying to be good for God, by trying to work their way towards God. It was all about their works, their efforts, their attempts to get to God. So the first aspect and the only aspect of human responsibility that we're hitting on today is faith. If you want to know what your responsibility before a sovereign God is, faith. You and I are called to have faith. That's a decision. That's a choice that each of us must make. God is sovereign. God is in control. My responsibility in light of the sovereignty of God is to have faith. Paul gives this picture. Two people. One obtained it. One did not obtain it. One, one didn't even try to pursue it, but they received it by faith. One tried to pursue it by works, not in faith, and they missed the mark completely. This is not a new teaching for Paul. He taught this centuries before when he sent a letter to the church uh, in Galatia. And in Galatians chapter 3, he said this, Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Galatians was written before Romans. And then in Romans chapter 1, Paul said this, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is not a new concept for them. Paul had been teaching and instructing and exhorting all along that life with God is not about a life of works trying to obtain God. Life with God is about faith, about receiving something that God has given us in faith, knowing that what we have received makes us righteous before God. Now, there comes a point where we must make a choice. Will I live seeking to obtain a relationship with God by works, by effort, by just trying to do a bunch of good things? Or will I receive a relationship uh, that God has made possible through Christ? I have to choose. I'm either going to choose a life of works or I'm going to choose a life of faith. Now, to live by faith means that I no longer work seeking to impress God. This is a very short, simple way to understand what a life of faith looks like. I'm not living my life 
trying to do so many different things where I'm getting gold stars as I go. And at the end of my life, I'll have a chart filled with numerous, numerous gold stars. And I'll show my report card to God and say, look at all my stars. That is a life of works. And God will say, you missed the point. What you were seeking to obtain, you missed it altogether. You must choose, will I live my life by faith or will I live my life trying to obtain something from God that he has made possible for me in his son, Jesus Christ? Paul gives also another picture of someone who's literally um, walking down the road. And the person is so intent on the direction that they are going that they stumble and trip and fall over what is just right in front of them. In verse 33, he says, see, uh, they, or verse 32 uh, because they pursued it not by faith, but as if, as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. See, as it is written, see, I lay as, uh, in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You ever seen someone who uh, texts a lot uh, and they're literally, like they're just walking around and they're texting and they literally just bump into someone or bump into an object that's just right in front of them? And you're kind of watching them from a distance, and they're like, they're going to hit. They're going to, yeah, they just hit. And you kind of laugh because it's like, wow, there was a large person, or there was a wall, and you just walked right into it. This is the picture I see in Romans chapter 9, 32 and 33. They are so intent. I'm going to work. I'm going to work. I'm going to achieve. I'm going to accomplish. And all along, they keep stumbling and tripping, ultimately falling over what is just right in front of them. The rock, meaning Jesus. Israel was so focused on the law that they not only missed the one who came to fulfill the law for them, they completely stumbled over him. They not only just missed that it was Christ who came to make it possible for them to have a relationship with God, they literally tripped and fell over the one who was the cornerstone of the kingdom of God, and his name was Jesus. I think one of the great promises is if you live a life, if you make the choice I'm not going to do it by works. I'm not going to try to obtain God's favor. I'm going to receive what God has given me in Christ. If you make that choice, one of the great promises in Romans 9.33 is you'll never be put to shame. You will never be put to shame. Now, good question is what does that mean? What does it mean that I will never be put to shame? Imagine if I just threw a big party. It was a huge celebration. It was a great banquet. Invited a lot of people to come. And on security that night, we had Joe Gore running security. We had maybe Steve Gardner running security. We had maybe Mark Mulvaney running security. Just to make sure that no one, you know, got in to the party that was not invited to the party. And these three big burly guys come and say, hey, Michael, we've got the, these two guys, uh, Jeremy Alexander and Paul Fleming. <laughs> they claim to have been invited. They claim to actually know you. You're the one throwing the party and they don't have any evidence or proof that they should be here, but yet they keep saying that they know you. And then they come to me, and Jeremy and Paul, now crying, <laughs> they, they're like, but Michael, we know you. We actually, we served with you. We were friends. Our families hung out together. And I just looked at them, and I'm like, Mark, Joe, and Steve... Please take them out back, and whatever comes to mind, no. 
If I literally just looked at them and said, man, get out of here. I have no idea who you are. I have no clue who you are. You don't even look familiar to me. Those two would be absolutely shamed in front of everyone. They came in claiming to have been invited, claiming to know the host or the guest of the party, and they get kicked out because they didn't. They were shamed. Now, this is um, a metaphor, actually, of what eternity will look like for some people. Jesus spoke of this. And I'm answering the question of, if you make the decision to live your life by faith, you will never, ever, both now and in eternity, face the shame of God looking at you and saying, I don't know who you are. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, this is emphatic. These are people, they're desperate. They're emphatically saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the will? Live by faith. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I think those are some of the most powerful words that Jesus ever spoke. Away from me, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. What a tragedy it would be to walk through life thinking that you have a relationship with God only to realize in the end you don't. Now, this is I want you to examine. Am I living by faith or am I still living by works? Am I living in such a way to work to get to God, to obtain God, or have I already received from God what he's made possible for me in Christ? This is an eternal choice we need to make. Talk about human responsibility. Will you choose to live by faith or will you choose to live by works? Way to help us understand what the foundation, what is the foundation of your relationship with God? Because I really want you to understand, am I doing it by faith or am I actually doing it by works? So this is a foundational question. What is the foundation of your relationship with God? Is it based upon your works, your efforts? meaning your whole relationship is based on what you do. So when things are, you're doing really, really well, you know, you're serving, you're giving, you're coming to church, you're reading, you're praying, you're doing all of these things. It just seems like everything is going great. But when you're not doing any of those things, your whole relationship with God falls apart. If that's you, that's a good description of your relationship with God is not based on the character of God. It's based on your efforts to get to God. Because when you're not doing the things to get there, where is he? How about maybe this is you? Is it based upon a combination of Christ coupled with your works? You come up with whatever this, you know, is it 50-50? Is it 80-20? Is it 90-10? 90% Christ, but it's still 10% me. Is it even 99% Jesus and 1% me? If that's the foundation of your relationship, you will enter into eternity, and Jesus, I didn't know who you were. I did not know who you were. Or is the foundation of your relationship with, with God based on the rock? You did not stumble over that stone. You built your life on that stone. Your entire relationship with God is based solely on the person of Christ. Now, how do you know which three is you? Someone asked me this great question uh, in my early 20s late teens, early 20s, and said, Michael, God says to you, why should I let you in my kingdom? What are you going to say? 
And I thought, wow, that's a pretty easy question. But as I started to answer, I started to kind of fumble over my answer. I'm like, wow, if God really asked me that question, I feel like it should be a pretty quick, simple answer. But yet I find myself talking more and more and more and more, trying to explain or trying to justify an answer to God. So what would you say? If God says to you, whatever your name might be, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should you be allowed into heaven? If there is anything in your answer that points to what you've done, what you've achieved, what you've accomplished, what you did, that's the wrong answer. My answer now would be, well, because of Christ. Christ did it all. My faith is solely in him. I have no standing, no merit before you, God, whatsoever. I stand alone by, the, by your grace in Christ. In Christ alone, that's it. So go back. What is the foundation of your faith? Paul is making a point here that there are some people who tried to obtain it from God by works, and they missed it. And then Paul says, but there were some who were not even pursuing it, but when it was revealed to them, received it, the righteousness of God in the person of Christ, and they obtained it all. Now, for those of you who are not stumbling over Christ, but you're actually building your life upon the person of Christ, the rock, what is your response specifically to those around you? And I'm thinking specifically um, about your friends, your neighbor, your family members who don't yet know God. If you're a Christian and you're fully confident, and I want you to have confidence that you're living by faith, not by works, if that's you, how do you view or look at the people around you, family, friends, neighbors, whoever, who are not there yet? They've not made that choice. They've not made that decision. Do you look at them and do you judge them? Do you look at them and just criticize them? Do you look at them and condemn them? Or do you look at them and you pray? I love how Paul starts Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I just love, and this is really reiterating something we learned in the very beginning of Romans chapter 9, where Paul says, if I could, I would. If I could, I would exchange my salvation so that my brothers would come to know Jesus. I would switch. I would be eternally damned if my brothers would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He goes and starts Romans 10 the same way. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For those who have this idea that Paul was just this hard guy, always just spouting off theology and making things pretty difficult for people to understand. You need to have a very different perspective of Paul in that he wept over his brothers. His heart's desire, his passion, his plea, his cry, his prayer was that his fellow brothers, his fellow Jews would be saved. Why? Why did he have such a heart for them? Because if we're honest with ourselves... I don't know if all of us could say, my heart breaks like his breaks. I weep for those. I weep for my neighbor who just doesn't know the love of God. I weep for my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister, my, my children, my coworker, my spouse. 
And I think the answer of why Paul had such a heart for his brothers is because he knew them really well. You have to keep in mind from where Paul came from. He went to school with some of these people. He sat in the same class learning from the same rabbis that some of his brothers learned from. He traveled with them. He walked with them. He was in the same class of Pharisees with some of these people. And I think one of the things more than anything, his heart was broken for them because he was once where they are, thinking that works would somehow bring merit or favor or salvation. I think one of the challenging things, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, it's funny when I ask people, you know, how long have you been a Christian? Well, my whole life. Really? Your, your whole, you just like popped out, walked out of the hospital a Christian? And I think what happens, especially the longer you've been a Christian, is you've forgotten what it was like not to be a Christian. You've forgotten what it was like when you were apart from God. You forgot what it was like to be separated from God. You've forgotten what it was like to just feel the guilt and just the weight of shame in your life. Now, this is not to say in a condemning way, but I think what Paul is, he remembers exactly what it was like to be where they are, and he just hurt for them. I think one of the things that uh, I've just learned a lot from observing Paul through Romans is This is a guy who chased a life of works. This is a guy who chased or tried to obtain righteousness on his own. And he actually wrote about it. And he says in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 4, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. As Paul considered where he once was, he said, I was like them. I was with them. I was doing the same thing that they were doing. And now his heart breaks. Why? Because his life has been so radically changed, transformed by the person of Jesus. He goes on in Philippians in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him. And I love verse nine, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul not only remembered where he once was and he wept for them because he realized how lost they were, he saw where he was and his desire was, I so desire for them to experience what Jesus has done in my life. I want them to experience the freedom and the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the compassion that comes with knowing Christ. Because when you walk the way of works, it's a life of just guilt and shame always wondering, have I done enough? Paul was not living like that anymore. He was completely set free. So I'm answering the question, how is it that Paul had such a heart for his brothers? He remembered where he was. Do you remember what life was like before you met Jesus? 
I do. And I would say guilt and shame marked my life. Emptiness. I am very thankful that one of the things that God allowed in my life in my early 20s was to taste the emptiness of it all. Because I was pursuing sin like it was my full-time job, and I got to the point where it just didn't taste good anymore. It actually never tasted good, but I needed the grace and mercy of God in my life just to realize how empty that lifestyle was. And now, almost 20 years later, I'm so excited about what God's doing in my life. I'm not done, but I'm not where I was and who I was 20 years ago. And I so want people that I know, that I love, that I am neighbors with and friends with to know what God has done and wants to do for them. Who are the people that you're praying for right now? Who are the people specifically that you're really just praying that God, please open up their hearts to you? If you're going to pay attention to the New Testament, all Paul's writings, he's always praying for people, specifically that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's fine to pray for people that, that God would take care of their needs, that God would bring healing where there needs to be healing. But I don't want to be the guy that's just praying, God, would you put another Band-Aid on that person's life? God, would you put another, a bigger Band-Aid this time on this person's life? But yet their soul is still vacant of a, relation, a genuine relationship with God. So who are you praying for by name? Bring their face to the front of your heart and mind right now and write their name down. Who is it that you are faithfully, consistently, fervently, passionately, with desire, praying for? Who is it that you're taking their name to heaven every day? There's a good chance that someone did that for you. I don't know that for sure, but there's a good chance that someone did that for you. I'm thankful that my mom did that for me, especially when I was totally gone prodigal, relentlessly, just with great faith, praying that God would one day redeem her son. I love Paul as a theologian, but I love Paul as a man who had a passionate but broken heart for those who did not know God. I want to encourage you this week alone uh, to go to your neighbor, to go to your coworker, your own spouse if they're not here with you, whoever your friends might be. Paul not only prayed for people, but he was continually inviting them, exhorting them into what God was doing. This week, I'm, I'm really excited about what our church is doing this coming Saturday. You have a unique, we all have a unique opportunity to go to family and friend and spouse and neighbor and say, would you just come with me this Saturday? I just want you to see this is going to be an amazing thing. Why I love the great giveaway specifically is I think it's great we're giving away free stuff, but in a small but really loud way, this is a demonstration of the gospel. God, who is so generous and so gracious, gave it to us free. It cost the life of his son, but for us, it was receiving freely what we did not deserve. Invite people this week to come with you to what's going to happen on Saturday. Let them see a demonstration of the generosity and the grace. Let them see the gospel at, at work. Pray for them, but then invite them into what God is doing in your life, in the life of this community. 
I remember last year specifically, I've already mentioned this, but uh, one lady in particular, she was just like, well, if I can't give you something, then I'm not going to take anything. And I'm like, ma'am, I'm bigger than you, and I do not want to beat you up, but you will take things from this parking lot. And she was just like, I can't walk away from here unless I give you guys something. I said, ma'am, we do not want anything. Please take this as just a gift. And she, she walked out. I mean, she didn't walk out like angry, but she walked out. She just could not fathom or understand how someone could give her something and there was no cost. It was absolutely free. Now, some of us may shake our heads at that, but some of us can relate really well with that. I cannot receive from God. I have to do something. I have to work for it. I have to pay him back. And if that's you, if your mentality is, I've got to work for it, I've got to pay him back, I'll get myself worthy enough, and then maybe I'll receive it. If that's you, the danger there is that you will completely miss grace. And not only will you miss grace, you'll actually start becoming very zealous, very zealous to work really hard obtaining something that God's really given you. Romans 10.2 says, For I can testify about them, Paul's talking about his brothers, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Have you ever met someone like that? They're so zealous. They have so much zeal. They have so much passion, but it's just so misguided. They have no idea where they're going, but they're traveling at about 100 miles an hour to get there. They are just running full steam ahead, but their zeal is absolutely divorced from knowledge. There are a lot of zealous people, spiritually speaking. They have a lot of zeal for God, for the things of God, for the works of God, for the services of God. But what Paul is saying about his Jewish brothers is they have a lot of zeal, but it's divorced from knowledge. And the knowledge is that God has revealed a righteousness that is for us through Christ. I don't want anyone in here. Paul says, be, have zeal, but have zeal for the Lord. Not have zeal for the things of the Lord or for working for the Lord, but have zeal for God. Don't let your zeal be divorced from the knowledge that God has given you. It's by his grace. It's his mercy. It's his righteousness. It's through Christ. Romans 10 goes on. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, and sought to establish their own. That's a big thing. They did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, Paul says they did not know. So were the Israelites unaware of the righteousness of God in Christ? Did they just, were like, hey, we had no clue that God made this possible. Paul's not saying that. He's saying they actually had the knowledge of, they just chose to reject it rather than receive it. They were very aware. Why? Because Paul's making it very clear to them. But they made a choice. I'm going to live by works. I'm not going to live by faith. I'm going to keep coming back to the sovereignty of God 
human responsibility. Our responsibility is to choose to live a life of faith, not to live a life of works. If you live a life of works, Paul says you will sought, you will try to establish your own righteousness. Because if you haven't received righteousness from Christ, you're going to try to figure out how you can become righteous. So question being, what does it look like to establish your own righteousness? Well, it's this. I'm going to establish a relationship with God on my terms. Meaning my relationship with God is my relationship. I will define what that relationship looks like. I will define the, the boundaries of what this relationship looks like. People who are trying to do it by works, they'll make up a relationship with God that really fits or suits their lifestyle. You need to decide, uh, they will, those who are doing that, what do I need to do in order to get to God? And then they will come up with whatever they feel like they need to do to get to God. Now, the problem with that, obviously, is, is many, but I think one problem is the rules are ever-changing. Do you ever notice that? If, if that's you, well, last year it used to be this, but now it's you've added something or you've taken something away. If you're defining your relationship with God and what it's going to look like and what you need to do to obtain a relationship with God, it changes all the time. Why? Because we need to justify our lifestyle, and if our lifestyle is not meeting, then we change our own standard. And so it's just this up and down. The attitude of those who seek to be self-righteous See if you've said these sentences recently. I've not committed any big sins recently. Therefore, I should be okay with God. I went to church on Sunday rather than sleeping in. Therefore, God should be pretty pleased with me. Actually, God should say thank you when I walk out the door. We shouldn't have our greeting team, our connections team telling people thank you. It really should be the God of the universe thanking me for showing up. I read my Bible when I woke up and prayed on the way to work. Therefore, God should, he owes me a really good day at work. Because I took, you know, I took, I took 10 minutes. I got up 10 minutes early so I could read a proverb and a psalm and maybe a few verses from the New Testament. And then I prayed. I turned my radio off and I prayed on my way to work rather than listening to some talk show. I head into work thinking, well, clearly God's going to take care of me because I took care of him. I soothed him. I did what he wanted me to do. Now he owes me. Or... I gave money. I even stayed in, in, in a place to help clean up or serve. Because I serve someone else. God, you need, now need to serve me. See, this is the fine line. There's many who say, I'm living by faith, but then our life does not resemble that we're actually living by faith because we're living by works. Because in the back of my head, I, I read my Bible today. God should give me a good day. I prayed, God should take care of me. That is based on on works, a life of faith does not look like that. The choice, I'm either going to do it by works or I will do it by faith. Self-righteousness, meaning works, disregards, devalues, discredits the grace of God demonstrated to us in Christ. I think this is a hard question, but if you're doing it partly by Christ, partly by works, or just all by works, then you have to answer the question, well, what's the point of the cross? Why do you need Jesus for anything? If you're trying to self-justify, self-work, get yourself to God, then why do you need Jesus? Why do you need a cross? 
Galatians chapter 2 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If you're trying to do it by works, if you're trying to get your way there, earn your way there, buy your way there, merit your way there, you don't need Jesus because you've nullified grace. So another question, do you believe that Jesus needs your help in order to justify you? I know we don't like say, yes, of course Jesus needs my help because I'm really a messed up person and so I need him to justify me, but then I need to do some things to also bring justification into the picture. Again, I know we quickly say, no, I don't need Jesus to justify me, but then my life, the decisions, the choices, my attitudes towards God certainly look like I'm trying to justify myself. Why? Because I'm doing all of these good things. This is where you can take good things and turn them into really sinful things, idolatrous things. Life by works, life by faith. This is a, a quote from John Owen, who is a, just a Puritan a pastor. And um, he said this, Making God's love contingent on our action is a sad but common misunderstanding in the church. Remember, a believer's union is never in jeopardy, for God's love is an eternal love that had no beginning, that shall have no ending, that cannot be heightened by any act of ours, that cannot be lessened by anything in us. While our sense of communion with God may fluctuate, his love does not grow and diminish. If you're pursuing it by works, you will miss that. You will be the person who is just in and out of a relationship with God because depending on what you did depends on where you are with God. But if you're living by faith and you have absolute confidence and assurance that no matter what happens to you, no matter what you do or don't do, the love of God is still a reality in your life. There's nothing you can do to increase that love. There's nothing you can do to diminish that love. And if you believe that, then you will live by faith. If you believe that you, there's nothing you can do to merit more of God's love, then you're set free to stop living trying to do that. And when you sin, when you trip, when you fall, when you stumble, you get back up pretty quickly. Why? Because you've not been cut off from God's love. You don't have to do anything to try to get back good with God. You had a really bad weekend, so I guess I need to pay penance for a few months, and then maybe God will... No, it doesn't look like that. That's works. Human responsibility is that we would live by faith. The law, the rules, the regulations kept tripping the Jewish nation up. They could not get beyond or past. We have to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law. It's all based on works. It's all based on law. What they missed and failed to understand about the law is that the law specifically was given to show them their need for grace. So that then when they realized they could not meet the righteous requirements of the law, they would cry out in mercy, God, will you help? God, will you save? I like how uh, Galatians says it. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. I hope I'm trying to spell this out pretty clear because I think Paul 
is spelling this out pretty clear. There are some who missed it altogether because they were trying to work their way there. And there were some who weren't even looking for it, but when it was revealed to them, said, I'll receive the righteousness that God has provided for me in his son, Jesus Christ. And they gained everything. Are you living life by faith, having received the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ? That is to live by faith. Or are you still living a life today where you're trying to work your way to God, where you're trying to do good enough, accomplish more, work harder in hopes that one day you'll obtain something? I will be honest with you, and if that's you, you are missing the point. And my heart's desire, I think Paul's desire, is that you would make the choice. Human responsibility is to say, I'm living life by faith. As we're going to spend some time in worship and uh, celebrate uh, communion, I just want to challenge you that if you're here today and you're thinking, wow, that was a pretty good descriptor of me that I'm living by works right now, thinking that I can obtain something from God by my performance to God. Would you repent of that? In this time of prayer, would you just confess to God where you are? God, I've been trying to work towards you. I've been trying to be good enough for you. Would you just repent of that attitude? Because it's actually causing a greater separation between you and God. If you're living life by works, please, before you leave here today, Repent of works and receive the grace that God has for each of us in the person of Christ. If you are doing both, kind of like 90% Jesus, but there's still 10% of me trying to work, trying to earn, trying to merit, please repent of the 10% because ultimately it's not 10%, it's still 100% you. If you are at all working, please, before you leave, repent of a works-based righteousness and receive the gospel. Receive what the righteousness that God's provided revealed in Jesus.